welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Quigley Down Under, an Australian Western starring Tom Selleck as a sharpshooter named Matthew Quigley. This is another Patreon request from our subscriber, Elise. So um, Tom Selleck's character moves to Australia to work for a local governor played by Alan Rickman in this movie, but soon becomes an outlaw going on the run with an American woman named Crazy Cora played by Laura San Giacomo. And it's directed by Australian filmmaker Simon Winsor and written by John Hill, originally planned as a vehicle for Steve McQueen. So this was a movie that kind of came out in 1990, but it was floating around Hollywood in script format for many years because it is clearly very saleable as a Western that just needs like a big old butch man in the protagonist role. And oh boy, does that what we got. The first shot of this movie is just like a cowboy boot clunking down onto a table and then the words Tom Selleck. And I was like, whoo, strong branding. (laughs) Yes, they really show you what you're going to get from early on. I feel like I must state at the outset of this episode that I hated this film deeply the entire time, which I feel bad about because this was a subscriber request and you always want to like those because these generous, lovely people have paid us to watch these movies. And I apologize to Elise for my sentiments, but I must speak my truth, which is that I fucking hated this movie and hopefully my sentiments will be entertaining to you and to everyone else listening, but I did not like this at all. Well, I got the impression, right, this is like a childhood fave. Yes. Yeah. Because, so, because when I started watching this film, I was like, this movie would be so good if you're 10 years old, because it's like a really old school style of Western. And at least kind of at the outset, it's quite like, it's quite kid friendly, basically. There's a lot of kind of goofiness to it. Uh, Tom Selleck's character Quigley arrives off the boat in 19th century Australia and immediately gets embroiled in... I mean, it's not quite like Pirates of the Caribbean level comedy, but it's a very sort of genre-appropriate, goofy fight with some Australian outlaws in town. And whenever he punches someone, the sound effect literally just sounds like Biff. And he's wearing this outfit that just makes them look like an illustration from one of those sort of boys' own adventure early 20th century comics. Because, like... His proportions are astounding. Like, we all know what Tom Selleck looks like, but I hadn't quite clocked that he was six foot four. So he's like towering over everyone in the movie, and it's just this sort of. I mean, he's like a Tom of Finland illustration. And the lead actress is like quite short, so there's like a very stereotypical height difference between them. Um, She was really good, I thought. It was quite an interesting role. But um, it kind of starts off like that, and like the whole point is that he is hired by Alan Rickman's governor character because he is such a tremendous sharpshooter and he's like, oh, we need someone to shoot dingoes. But it becomes very apparent that what he actually wants him to shoot is deserters from the British army and um, local Aboriginal peoples. So it's like a classic evil racist Alan Rickman role. And um, there's sort of a quite pretty good scene where like Alan Rickman invites Tom Selleck round to his house to have a very racist business discussion about what Quigley's job is going to be while there is this uh, Aboriginal butler in the background kind of fetching them drinks and stuff, which is very awkward. And the conversation kind of concludes with Quigley like beating him up and then running away and um, and then being sort of arrested and as it turned into an outlaw. So... That is kind of the key moral conflict of the film and it's very much like, oh, Quigley's this like upstanding guy who stands up for ladies and has a good sense of fairness and, you know, 
And it, at this point, it kind of devolves into like a very white savior zone movie. <laughs> it is true dances with wolves avatar territory. And as someone who, as we discussed a few weeks ago, enjoyed Stargate in my youth, I can see why this would be enormously appealing to kids, especially because all the sharpshooter stuff is so fun. It's all about how, you know, he can shoot anything from like 900 yards and he's this cool like gunslinger. Um, But yeah, it turns into this, it's very much in the white savior zone. And while the film is intended to shine a light on genocide in 19th century Australia, it is doing so in a way that I would describe as distinctly cavalier. Because <laughs> most of the film is like a fun Western and then you will literally just have like a pile of bodies. And it's like, this is very upsetting material. <laughs> and then uh, Quigley saves the day because he's really good at guns. So there's a lot to, there's a lot to look at here. <laughs> uh, yes, you've said so much. <laughs> I mean, to start with the childhood film thing, like I think that's so true that you see things when you're a kid that you just kind of imprint on, which obviously was the case for this subscriber. Um, I remember in college, I had roommates who, I think it was freshman year, showed, or like friends who showed my roommate and me um, Newsies. And I had never seen Newsies, which obviously is it's a, a classic. Di- yeah, a different dynamic than this, because as far as I recall, there aren't like like problematic elements of Newsies. Although maybe there are, because I never finished it because we made it a half an hour in and I was like, I literally cannot watch this. <laughs> like, I am going crazy. This is a nightmare. And they were like, but I love it so much. And I was like, it's so bad. But they had all watched it a million times when they were nine and I had not. And I think you just interact with things differently when you're a child. And obviously a lot of the stuff in this movie that to me plays as uh, horrible, I would certainly not have grasped as you know an eight or nine year old or whatever age but this was not the type of movie that I was watching at that age because we only watched Disney films in my household and it also was not a hit so if it did make its way to sort of childhood homes it would have been through sort of random means I would imagine as you said it was this script that was floated around in Hollywood forever and forever and was originally intended for Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen dies prematurely, of course, and eventually gets the, the script gets picked up. Um, Simon Windsor, who's the Australian filmmaker, thinks that it's sort of historically inaccurate, and then I, they do some more work on it. And it finally gets made, and then sort of lands with a thud. It was not very well-reviewed, and it didn't make very much money. So it's kind of gone untalked about but clearly has something of a cult appreciation amongst people who obviously were like just the right age to see it at the time right i mean when i started watching it without being aware of this backstory i was sort of like is there a series of quigley movies because that's kind of what the title almost feels like and it feels like oh this should have been like tom Selleck's kind of indiana jones role but that's, I mean, I don't, I don't think they were even planning for a franchise because clearly the writer had only written this one story for it and it had been around for, you know, 15 years or something. But it felt like it's like, oh, what if the Quigley movies with our famed hero Quigley? <laughs> yes, it does feel like that. And Selleck's kind of interesting because he's obviously a hugely famous individual and did a lot of movies. But if you look at his IMDb, the stuff that is clearly the things that he would have been most known for at least the impression that I get looking at it from after the fact he's I think his biggest mark was more television 
I mean, he has been starring in Blue Bloods for the past 10 years. Forever. But that's one of those shows sort of siloed off where it's like, this show is clearly really successful, but it's not part of the cultural conversation in any way. Yes. Um, and he was on Magnum P.I. for forever in the 80s. Um, and then again, like made a lot of movies. He was in Three Men and a Baby, famously. But we were discussing before we started that he and Clint Eastwood have a sort of similar vibe. They're both members of the NRA, which we will discuss later. But um, he seems to me to be more of a sort of like figure who's in your home in a friendly way because he's a TV guy, even though he did have a very successful movie career. And this strikes me as something where like a lot of these movies that are on his IMDb like are not titles that have survived. And maybe some of them, like I didn't look up all of them, made money, I don't know. But I wonder if there was an effort to be like, oh, he was a huge hit on Magnum P.I. We're going to make him a huge movie star now. And obviously he's very famous, but he's not Clint Eastwood, right? So it didn't totally work. He wound up on Blue Bloods and not like winning Oscars. And again, he's obviously had a successful career, but it's just a different kind of success than... Hollywood may yeah. have been and I've not like seen enough of his work to really be able to judge what he's like as an actor because in this I was like oh yeah he's like he's quite likable in this and he's obviously got this like amazing physical presence which is a significant portion of his appeal and also the fact that he's got a signature mustache which no one else in Hollywood does so that goes a long way in terms of recognition but like I mean I think probably the thing I've seen him in most is when he played Monica's older boyfriend in Friends yes me so. too <laughs> That's where people of our demographic know him from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him in anything else except for that. And now this. Which is funny because, I mean, I was saying this about Kurt Russell a couple weeks ago. Like, he's such a famous person. Well, I think he's he's doing stuff for dads, yeah. right? Because, like, if he'd, if he'd done a sci-fi movie, then we would have seen him. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's done, like, a sci-fi movie. He's done, like, a million TV shows and movies for dads, which are set in the real world. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is good in this, in the sense that he does what the movie's asking him to do. He's definitely very charismatic. But the part is so objectionable to me that, you know. <laughs> I mean, literally, I watched this on Stars. This is streaming on Stars if people, you know, have cable packages um, that include stars and the film that it suggested to me that I watch after it was over was Dances with Wolves and I was like no 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 No, thank you I'm done now Um, and I just kept thinking especially near the beginning of the movie like this takes place in the 1860s which I would not have been able to pick out specifically but that's according to the wikipedia page but it's clearly 19th century right and this guy has gone from america to australia and shows up at this guy's big house and they're talking about what his job is going to be and as you say he gets very upset when alan rickman who is great we'll talk about him in a second explains that he wants him to just like murder all these aboriginal people and like throws him out of his own house, like, through the window. It's very dramatic. And I was like, okay, so you've been, like, a cowboy in America in the 1860s. I was also wondering about this, because I was like, so, in the movie, I mean, spoilers, but, like, the movie ends with him and Cora going back to America, and I'm like, Australia isn't, like, notably worse in this very specific regard. <laughs> like, well, 
I was like, you're probably like a confederate. Maybe you just haven't participated. So let's get rid of that. But like that did occur to me. I hadn't even considered that. Number yeah. (laughs) Oh, but the biggest thing is like he's probably involved in like the genocide of the Native American people, right? Like the Indian Wars are, I guess, the big ones happen a little bit later. But like this dude is definitely killing Native Americans. Like 100%. That's what that man is doing in the West, right? And so the idea that he would just be like, it is so outrageous to me that you suggest that I kill these Aboriginal people that I will throw you out a window. It's such a fantasy that I was just laughing. Like, it, it's nonsense. And obviously the movie... Because it would make... The movie I mean, is. if like they'd it, set you know. it up... I mean, obviously the movie's silly, but, like, if they'd set it up in the first act, like, oh, Quigley has to leave America because, like, he's such a political radical right. <laughs> that, like, he's fleeing to Australia, obviously also a terrible idea, but, like, then I'd be like, okay, but it, it's very... I mean, on the one hand, it's like it feels almost silly to be like, oh, wow, what an inconsistency in this clearly very silly movie. But at the same time, like, that element of the film is, like, really explicitly trying to make a statement. Like, the film was literally conceptually inspired by the writer reading an article in the LA Times about the genocide in Australia and being like, I need to write a film about this. And the format that he chose was, like, a traditional Western where the Australian Aboriginal people are taking the role of the Native Americans in this type of narrative. But if if anything, the role here is like even worse than, you know, the stereotypical roles you get in a lot of Westerns because there are not actually any Aboriginal characters. I mean, they are present in the film. Like after Quigley and Cora uh, get kicked out of Alan Rickman's stronghold and basically escape, they're left in the desert to die and they are saved by like some local people but there's a language barrier you never hear aboriginal people speak in english and there's no subtitles on when they're speaking to each other and it's like very kind of it's the kind of classic sort of exoticization depiction like and there's like scenes where they kind of exchange like their skills or whatever and I'm like okay Tom Selleck has nothing to offer these people and I'm slightly insulted that you think he could teach them anything of use when they've spent like you know millions of years living in this place figuring out how to live in the Australian desert I don't think Tom Selleck has anything to offer um but they like have a little cultural exchange and because he's got a gun he's able to help them out and I'm like my knowledge of Australian history is limited but I'm pretty sure there's a significant element of like handing out guns being bad right because it's like every single time like Europeans and Americans colonize somewhere there's like an element of that that involves giving or selling guns to the indigenous people which ends up destroying people's ways of life and exacerbating disputes with the colonizers and stuff like that but here it's just like look this really great sharpshooter has shown up and he's gonna solve a lot of problems by being the person who's got a really good gun (laughs) Yes. I do now feel just so bad, like, shitting on this movie, which our lovely Patreon subscriber has requested. And I, I, yeah, I hope this is what you expected (laughs) or or could at least have predicted based on past episodes where we have just discussed movies. I mean, there's nothing else we can do. (laughs) Yeah, it it is what One must remain ethically true. Yeah. I mean, so there are two, two things from that. The first is. As you say, they get sort of rescued wandering around in the desert by these local Aborigines, and they're clearly like about to die or 
you know, from thirst, whatever, and they save them. And I was thinking about Stargate watching this, which, you know, we just watched, and there's a language barrier there, too, because they have invented this fake language for these people on this alien planet, right? But they go through all of this stuff to make James Spader in that movie, like, figure out how to communicate with them. And it's nonsense because it's a fake language. But, like, they have the whole thing where they're like, oh, do you want to eat the candy bar? And whatever. And, like, as we discussed, I thought that movie was a bad. But this movie even bypasses that basic stuff of, like, them attempting to figure out how to communicate, right? Like, the kids bring over the bugs for them to eat, which feels very gross out. Like, oh, they eat bugs, right? And there's that's the extent of any scene where you see them, like, interacting with each other that's not a montage of just, like, look at them dowsing for water or whatever. Yeah, there's no sense of, like, individuality. No, no, no. So you don't have a scene, for instance, where, like, they wake up and they're like, oh my god, what's going on? And have to attempt to communicate and create some kind of mutual understanding with these people. Which is a sort of scene that is almost always bad in these movies, but at least it's making some effort to give personhood to the native people, right? Whereas, like, even if you can't have the full communication of, like, fluency on both sides, there's you can have some effort. This movie completely, completely bypasses that. They make no effort at all. And eventually the Aboriginal people just leave because they figure out, the, like, there's some white people coming and they're going to shoot them. And Tom Selleck, like, heroically picks off some of them with his amazing gun. Which... Leads me to the second part of my response, which is that this movie loves guns so much. Like, so much. It literally, like, opens with him explaining his fancy gun to, like, a collected group of people, which he's, like, had specifically made for him. The bullets have to be, like, modified so that they shoot correctly. And it is, I mean, I just, it was, it was too much for me. <laughs> and as you say, there's this history obviously of like guns being bad when the colonizers bring them anywhere. And that is not the vibe of this movie. The vibe of this movie is that Tom Selleck has this amazing weapon that combined with his amazing ability to shoot it makes him heroic. And there's it was, it was funny thinking about it because you have other movies where, like, a hero's physical prowess makes them better than other people in some way, right? Along with the moral authority. And in this, it's like, yeah, he's really ripped, but all of the skill is coming from the the gun because that's the sort of reflection of manhood, right? And it just felt so American to me in a very warped way. The whole Western genre is all about, like, the mythos of, like, the gunslinger, right? Because it's, like, obviously, you know, horses are a big element of it. And sort of in the more serious ones, there's, like, a lot more kind of politics to do with, you know, financial or land disputes or what have you. But the idea of being, like, really amazingly quick on the draw is obviously foundational. And then, I mean, they even touch on this in this movie, sort of, like, the the idea of the Colt rifle being, like, this 
foundational element of like American culture. So this whole genre is all about like, if you're really good at a gun, that makes you a hero. <laughs> um, and it, it is kind of fascinating to see like what a relic this feels like because there was just this really long period of American filmmaking where, you know, the gun was just like so heroized and now it's like much less so for reasons that we've gone into in many of other episodes um, that are fairly obvious. But um, this was like a pretty amazingly straightforward example. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it's no surprise to see that um, Mr. Selleck is a big NRA person. In fact, he was the big boss man of the NRA taking over uh, from Charlton Heston. But um, it's kind of interesting though, because like when you were saying to do with how his public image has been much more like, you know, he's a bit more cozy and dad-like and he's never been like a really big movie star, even though he is very famous and recognisable. It's kind of interesting that he's like, even though he is the poster boy for the NRA, his public image, as far as I've been able to tell, is like not that extreme, which is kind of weird. Because like Clint Eastwood has like a very intense, weird and quite threatening vibe. And he is clearly like extremely conservative. And Tom Selleck is like, oh, you know, sometimes I vote Republican and I'm a maverick and I like John McCain and he's kind of described himself as like a libertarian Republican or, you know, whatever. But like the NRA is obviously like an evil commercial cult, <laughs> which he has been fronting for years and years and years. But at the same time, he apparently like first joined when he was like eight years old or something. And he's been brought up on this and like his whole career has been, I mean, like Magnum PI, like his whole career has been in this zone. And I think it must just be like, it's such like an intrinsic part of his identity that he was like actively seeking out this role being like I'm desperate to do this movie that's about how good guns are and it's it's just like it feels very sincere but sincerely awful <laughs> yes I mean we just have to read out the paragraph of his wikipedia page that talks about this because it's just <laughs> it, we cannot summarize it it is incomparable so it's under political views, which always a bit of a roll of the dice when you get to a political views of someone's Wikipedia page. And it says, he has been a member of the board of directors of the National Rifle Association and served as spokesman for the organization. He resigned from the board on September 18th, 2018. After his close friend, Charlton Heston, stepped down from the role as an NRA spokesman in 2003, Selleck succeeded him. In 2002, Selleck donated the rifle he used in Quickly Down Under, a custom 13-pound single-shot 1874 Sharps rifle with a 34-inch barrel, along with six other firearms from his other films, to the NRA. The firearms are part of the NRA's exhibit, Real Guns of Real, R-E-E-L, Heroes, at the National Firearms Museum. To promote his film, The Love of Letter, Selleck was invited to be on the Rosie O'Donnell show on May 19, 1999. During the appearance, O'Donnell interrogated Selleck about his support of gun ownership. So this would have been like a month after Columbine. At an ad in which he appeared supporting Oof. the NRA. At the end of the interview, Selleck stated, It's your show and you can talk about it after I leave. Selleck later confided to Sean Robinson that he forgives O'Donnell, stating, I still like Rosie. I think she needs to take a deep breath and stop thinking everyone who disagrees with her is evil. So I feel like perhaps late in the 90s, he had a sort of different cultural vibe <laughs> than he does now. Because <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, that was when he was on Friends. Yes. But I mean, like, if you were paying attention. 
Because now he's yeah. fully just receded into, like, old age, right? But certainly, I mean, it was just a less polarized time. So you could get away with being like, oh, yeah, it's a kind of yeah. Republican guy. Yeah. And also, I think famous. there was probably a higher percentage of people who were, like, into the NRA who were just, like, a bit more chill about it. Because, obviously, it has always been, you know a conservative organization about how much you love guns. But, you know, 20 years ago, there was probably a lot more people who were just like, I'm a farmer and I like to shoot stuff. Whereas now it's like, I'm a Nazi. So, yes. you know. I mean, their public presence is definitely shifted. Yeah. Their public presence is like, it should be really great for every single teacher to have a gun in school. We all know the NRA. Right. We don't need to explain the context there, but it's not a good one. Right. Whereas, I, th- I mean, again, like this was... Not that it was good in the 90s either, but certainly, like, the, the yeah. school shooting era has shifted that. And, like, I suspect that, like, the average person or, like, politically engaged person did not know who was in charge of the NRA in the 90s. No. Whereas, like, we both definitely know who that is now, right? So I think he probably just sort of carried along and could say stuff and, you know... And now he's, because he's an actor and not a director and not a huge movie star, I think there's a different vibe from Eastwood, who is more in charge of his own career and public presence. Yeah, and like, you know, his own politics are very present in his films. Right. Which I do not watch because I find him disgusting. Yes, agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And his movies are bad, so there's really no temptation to do that. How can you say that about the routinely award-nominated, iconic Clint Eastwood, who recently made a movie where he had multiple threesomes as a drug smuggler? (laughs) I mean, that sounds so tempting, and yet somehow I have resisted. Um, But yeah, the fact that the gun from this movie is in an exhibit somewhere is just, to, to get back to Quigley, is just very, very entertaining to me. Like... (laughs) yeah what i mean the thing is right that like one doesn't want to be too condescending to the audience right because like on the one hand i mean if this film was not racist on the one hand the gun propaganda elements are very clear and clearly very effective in the kind of wider culture in terms of just giving people that sort of subtle assumption that a good guy with a gun can solve any problem but like i mean i could find this kind of film entertaining under other circumstances you know like a fun western um, <laughs> I mean, so I think what this sort of reveals, and like, I like some Westerns a lot. I haven't seen that many of the sort of classic ones because it just was never a genre I was super interested I mean, in. I find I've tried because like my brother was really into them for a while. And I so I've seen like parts of a lot of the really classic sort of like Fistful of Dollars and so forth. And I was just like, it's so boring because it's like a lot of them are just like men sort of glaring at each other from like across a desert or whatever. I should probably revisit them because there are a few um, which are obviously like the really big spaghetti westerns, which were really innovative in terms of various filmmaking techniques. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, I need I just need to watch a bunch of the really classic ones as someone who's really interested in like Golden Age Hollywood cinema. It's a kind of blind spot for me. I love some of the revisionist ones that have come out in the past 20 years or so from Hollywood. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've obviously seen a lot more of those. Yeah. Uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast before, is one of my favorite movies. It's a total masterpiece. And that movie does not really engage with the question of Native people at all. It's just... I, I 
maybe there's some reference, but like, that's just not what the movie's about. And that sort of proof of concept to me that you can do a movie like this and have it work and not engage with that subject. But it's really hard because what this movie sort of proves to me is that the oppression of those populations is so fundamental to the genre, right? That it's just really difficult to make these movies and have them not be racist. And this film is in- intending to not do that. Like, clearly, we know from the interviews with the writer and director, this is coming from a place of good intentions, but everything about it is unfortunate on that level, watching it after the fact. And I'm sure many people watching it at the time also felt that way. And so if that's so deeply rooted into the like DNA of the genre, you have to work really hard to subvert that or get out of it. And like the Coen brothers did their Western movie a few years ago. Um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I hated that film. Right. I thought it sucked. And I love the Coens and that movie. I just wanted to scream the whole time. And it featured all of these very stereotypical racist depictions of Native Americans. And the defense from people was that they were commenting on or like riffing on old Western movies that featured these kind of stereotypical depictions. And I was like, well, who cares? Like, that's not, that's not interesting, right? I think we did kind of discuss that in one of our film festival podcasts a while ago. And it was like, I was just like astounded by the number of positive. I mean, I shouldn't have been astounded. I'm so naive, but I was astounded by the number of positive reviews this was getting. And it's like, look, the Coen brothers have made what? 150 movies. You can just enjoy the ones that like, aren't like, aren't a huge mess, (laughs) Um, which that was. And I mean, also kind of in the context of this movie, obviously it's like, thematically there's just it's it's obviously kind of just substituting the kind of racial dynamics in Australia and America in like a intentional and very obvious way but like there's even like a second level of it being like removed from anything remotely ethical because obviously it's like a an American filmmaker and it was an Australian director and it was filmed in Australia and it had a lot of Aboriginal Australian actors in it but like there's hardly any movies, especially like at that point in history, that have Aboriginal characters. Like I was thinking about like movies that came out recently and the only one I could think of was The Nightingale, um, which came out a couple of years ago and it's directed by Jennifer Kent who made uh, The Babadook, which is an incredible movie. And The Nightingale is kind of famous for being extraordinarily just violent, very intense kind of uh, film involving some very intense rape which I have not watched because I was just like I read a few reviews and I was like well (laughs) I'm sure this film is making some good points but like apparently it starts off with a half hour rape scene so like that's not happening (laughs) but um the list of movies with like Aboriginal Australian protagonists is not long whereas at least in the kind of context of American filmmaking because obviously there's this huge history of like movies that required Native American actors uh, there are there is at least more films where there's like some subversive element or there are Native American actors who are like making some money off it and obviously there's a really problematic history of that including um, Morgan do you know Iron Eyes Cody? No. Well he was like one of the, he was a very successful like classic Hollywood Native American actor in 
like the mid mid 20th century i think like 1940s type movies um and he became like a spokesperson for native american actors in hollywood and it turned out he was italian and he had faked yes yes yeah faked the whole the whole situation and it's like a weird situation where like he apparently did quite quite a lot of like good advocacy work and also it was like this is a very fucked up identity that you've because it wasn't like he wasn't like an adoptee he was fully italian and had just made up a whole backstory for himself but there are like there's lots of kind of examples of how native american actors had sort of made their mark on films in hollywood and also more recently there's some films that are actually made by native american people and i'm sure that is the case now in australia but there's just like a very tangled and messy situation going on here by attempting to like transpose different elements of that into an australian historical movie which otherwise should just have been like a kid's adventure film about a man with a big gun shooting stuff well and also there's the scene where um they witness these white australian or british um i can't remember if they're the british army or what but white people anyway um literally like pushing these aboriginal people like off a cliff to their death it was awful i was like horrible i was like what the fuck is happening it was like this really intense like violent very real scene that culminates in like cora kind of weeping over this like pile of dead bodies and i was like the tonal shift here is alarming and very poorly handled well and i was watching it and i was like so is this based on a specific incident i'm sure things like that i mean did happen right like all the time but i was wondering if it was based on a specific incident and i don't know very much about australian history um as we were saying but it felt so disrespectful and sort of tonally off right yeah, and I was also thinking of, like, the actors who were... Well, I mean, they weren't professional actors, but, like, the kind of people who were hired as extras yes. in that film. Like, to do that, I was just like, that that is a fucked up thing to ask someone to do in this context. Right. And it, again, speaks to the just, like, misguided nature of the whole project, right? Which is, I can so easily imagine what's going through the heads of the people the like screenwriter and director who are responsible for this, which is they're thinking, okay, we're going to show that these people did this really awful stuff and it's going to be really important, but it doesn't work (laughs) in the context of this silly movie that you've made. And also the people you're showing being murdered and abused have no personalities. (laughs) So like, it just doesn't, it, it just, just feels disgusting. Right. As opposed to, making you think, oh, wow, the British were really bad. I mean, yes, obviously that's true, but... It definitely kind of brings to mind the Avatar situation, right? Because it's like, this is a... There's a long kind of history of these movies where it's a white saviour movie which is made with, like, genuine good intentions. Obviously, a lot of these films are just kind of tropey, but, like, sometimes the filmmaker is, like, explicitly saying, either in their creative process or while marketing the film, like, I was trying to make this point. And they just don't... I mean, they don't have, like, the analytical skills to understand how and why they fucked up and they haven't, like, hired anyone from, like, the correct, like, ethnic background to explain anything to do with making the film. But, like, with Avatar, you know, our old pal uh, James, he was kind of talking about, like, oh, this is meant to be kind of allegorical towards indigenous communities in the Amazon rainforest, I think, and was kind of talking about how it was all about climate change and, you know, the military-industrial complex, which, like, the films are... But, like, as you will know, if you've seen Avatar or indeed listened to our iconic Avatar (laughs) podcast episode, um, 
it completely backfired because like obviously that is not like lighting a fire under anyone's ass politically it's also it doesn't function as an as an allegory in the way that some blockbuster movies definitely do like mad max fury road obviously an incredibly uh like thoughtful and effective political allegory but with something like this it's like you need to have nuance and you have to have you know the aboriginal characters have to be the point of view characters and the intentions behind this film were like let's shine a light on this part of Australian history and the effect was we've got this really great gun that we're going to put in the NRA museum which I feel like really wraps up the end impact of many of these Hollywood action movies. Yes well and I was thinking a lot watching this about um, the piano Jane Campion's uh, iconic film which you have not seen although we were talking about it the other day on an unrelated note um, one of my favorite movies ever, one of the best films ever made, in my opinion. And that takes place at a similar period to this, a couple decades later, I would say, in New Zealand. And uh, Holly Hunter plays uh, a Scottish woman who is mute and gets shipped off to marry uh, Sam Neill, who's quite older, quite a bit older than she is, in New Zealand. Uh, they've not met before, and she's not very... He, he just needs a wife and she, he's not a great catch and she's not very desirable because she doesn't talk and she has a daughter who's Ill- illegitimate, right? So it's this just sort of mess of a marriage, right? And she shows up and it's they're in the middle of like nowhere because it's not very developed yet in New Zealand. And there are a lot of Maori people in that film. And I think that that movie does so much of what this movie... I mean, obviously they're completely different in like every way and the objectives are different but I kept thinking about it because they're about sort of similar periods of history and that movie is definitely about the white people like it's about a sort of love triangle in a weird way between her and Sam Neill and uh, Harvey Keitel who plays this sort of um servant guy on this I mean estate is so the wrong word um but like piece of land who's much lower class and has lived there a long time and is very friendly with the Maori people. And you really get a sense of how this sort of weird, like the weirdness of colonialism, right? And how these people are sort of interacting with each other and it's sort of strange and uncomfortable, but also the Maori people are sort of just like these weird white people, like what the fuck are they doing? And it manages to be a film that both clearly has thought about all of those issues and the class issues of the various white people very deeply, while also still being a story about primarily the white characters, because that's the story that she's interested in telling. And it just all totally works, because she's a genius, and that movie is a masterpiece. And, you know, not everything's going to be the piano, which is fine, but... This movie, it just felt like, despite their desire to tell a historical story, like, there's just no sense of any of that kind of nuance or understanding of anything. And we should talk about Alan Rickman now, who is great. The one thing in this movie I actually kind of liked. But, like, he has these people working for him who are obviously of lower status, And the movie doesn't really think about that either, right? They're just presented as also kind of like the evil bad guys. And I kept thinking about the Harvey Keitel character in the piano, who also is a white guy, but again has this weird 
position where like he's kind of in with the Maori people because he's a lower status person, right? He's not like Sam Neill who doesn't want to deal with them at all. And the again, the sort of like nuances of that and this movie just doesn't get anything. It doesn't grasp anything at all. And it was just like there was so much they could have done with everything that is just sort of thrown out, which was too bad. But Alan Rickman is very good playing an evil man who he clearly gets is like a yes. monster, which is the saving grace of that performance, I think. Yeah, I think before we wrap up, we should just we've kind of forgotten to talk about Cora a bit. Um, I thought like that that character was kind of also slightly a mixed bag because like I thought the actress was pretty good. She gave quite like a nuanced performance while also playing like in many ways quite a goofy role because like she's introduced in this like very silly context where she's kind of I mean her nickname is Crazy Cora uh, and she sort of latches on to Quigley and it's calling him Ray all the time and it's like basically convinced that this is her long lost American husband Ray. She is also someone who's come here from America and then like as the movie progresses you kind of find out that she's kind of the way she is because uh, her her baby died like she accidentally smothered her baby trying to keep the baby quiet while her town was being raided and then her husband basically had her shipped off to Australia to get rid of her so she's really traumatized and she's kind of fixated on her lost husband and her baby and then kind of as the like towards the end she like becomes more compass mentis and like she and Tom Selleck of course by the end of the film they fall in love but um you know, she kind of heals a bit, but also with the help of, like, basically saving a baby, an Aboriginal baby whose family were all killed. And I was, like, very nervous for, like, about half an hour of that film because I was like, is this going to end up with white people stealing that baby? She did give the baby back to, like, a random other person, but I was like, okay, I mean, sure. <laughs> um, But, like, she is healed by being able to briefly be mother to this other other person's orphan child um somewhat dubious but like I feel like that actress gave a good showing in what could have been a more disastrous role I also on a more superficial note quite appreciated the way this film did understand how to use a corset as a bra because she's wearing this like absurd kind of western outfit where she's you know she's she's got this like amazing hourglass figure and she is wearing like millions of skirts in the boiling heat, which people would have been doing. Um, and in some ways it's actually pretty like practical. And then she's wearing kind of like a corset over her shirt, but it's like, yes, this is the type of corset whose purpose is to act as a bra. So you can like run around without, you know, jiggling <laughs> yes. um, rather than making her look like a sort of tiny waisted sexy person, which she is, but like, it was a pretty good costume. Yeah. I liked the costumes on her, um, or really the one costume that sort of gets smaller as the film goes along. Um, I thought she was very good. I thought that character was a nightmare because she's basically just playing like a crazy lady who's really into Tom Selleck, which I found exhausting. But um, I thought that she made her much more human than she probably was on the script. She had been in Sex, Lies, and Videotape a year before this, I think. And I ha I saw that years ago, but I remember her being good in that. She, I think, plays Andy McDowell's sister, maybe a friend. But uh, yeah, she's she's a good actress, and I think she's good in this movie. We should also say that Ben Mendelsohn is in this film in a very small role. Yeah. But it was really fun. A, a very young Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, it was really fun to see him. I did not recognize him until fully halfway through the movie. 
He plays... Oh, me too. I didn't recognize him until, like, the yeah, end. Yeah, <laughs> he plays one of Alan Rickman's goons, and he's got uh, very bright ginger hair, which must have been dyed, because that's not his hair color. Wait, was he the ginger one? Yeah. Because I recognized him at the end, but maybe he was wearing a hat. I did not recognize him when he was ginger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is a ba- He's, like, 20 years old. He's a baby. Very small part, but uh, it was just very amusing to see him. Uh, I had one final very trivial note. Did you notice... When Alan Rickman was getting a shave, that they had a fully just modern hotel towel on his chest. I I did not notice that no Morgan. <laughs> I burst out laughing. I feel like there were a couple other moments like this where I was like, that doesn't seem like the correct period thing to be doing. But this was the one that really cracked me up. I'll try to find a screenshot of this because I can should be able to get it. It literally is just like a towel that you could buy at a store. And he's like waving it around in front of the camera. And I was like, oh, this really reflects many of the problems of this film. <laughs> like they must have just been like, we don't have a towel. You just got to throw one on him. Um, but it did not look like something that you could get in 1860. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on this um, film? I do not. We do have a mini sword coming up. Morgan, what are we going to do our mini sword on? Minority Report. Excellent, excellent film. Yeah. I watched this movie a few months ago. I think I mentioned it at some point in the podcast. And you had seen it many years ago. But uh Yeah, I saw it like when it came yeah. out. I was like, oh, okay, I saw this when I was twelve. And then obviously like a couple of things really stuck in my mind because it's got a couple of memorable scenes, but I'd forgotten the plot and I rewatched it the other day and was like, Yeah, fucking kicks ass. This movie's great. Yeah, so we're gonna Well done, Steven Spielberg. We're gonna talk about that. It's really, really interesting movie. It's one of the most potent post 9-11 movies I have ever seen, which I think was largely not intentional, but... Yeah, because, I mean, it must have been in production, you know, in 2001, came out in 2002, yeah. obviously. But, like, it absolutely, Morgan is completely right. I was like, even if you hadn't pointed it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's eerie. Um, So that'll be fun to talk about. Thank you again to Elise. We are sorry for this episode. Hopefully you got some entertainment value. From us shitting on this movie. We gotta just say what we think. And it is what it is, I guess. Uh, We truly appreciate it. If you would like to roll the dice and have us watch a movie of your choosing, potentially it's do not like very much, but, you know, hopefully. I mean, you know, people have heard our podcast. We like a lot of movies. It's true. I, I love many films. This sadly was not one of them, but you can't win them all. You can do that also at our Patreon along with the extra episodes and things. That is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor and you can find my work on the Daily Dot. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank